Hey everyone, welcome to Shrink's Talk Shop, where psychotherapy experts share their thoughts with you. And you don't have to be a therapist to listen. First a quote from one of this week's speakers. So addiction is like a bad lover that you keep returning to uh, for, the, uh, for that first sex. And then it always turns into a catastrophe. The other person starts to treat you like crap and, and, and you know, steals your wallet and, 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 you know, so forth and so on. And, and you, you know, you leave and you say, I'm never, ever going back to her or to him. I, you know, I don't ever want to see that person again the rest of my life. And then it's the following week or the following month, kind of thinking, boy, you know, a romp in the sack with Lola would be really good right now. And then Lola, meanwhile, is saying, oh, I've changed. It'll be different this time. And eventually it never is. Uh, and, and the third thing that happens is that the parts of the brain that inhibit behavior, typically in the prefrontal cortex, become weaker. And the, and the parts of the brain that drive behavior, the wanting becomes very, very strong. So it's harder to say no to it. And those, that's the essential neurobiology. That's Dr. Mark Willenbring, and you're listening to the first in a series of podcasts from On Good Authority. I'm Barbara Alexander, the founder and president of On Good Authority, which is a website where mental health professionals can listen to interviews with psychotherapy experts and earn the continuing education credits they need to renew their licenses. I'm a clinical social worker, and I started this company in 1992. Since then, I've interviewed hundreds of experts, and now I'm going to share some of the best of them with you. In this first of three podcasts, we take a look at some of the neurology of opiate addictions. As usual, there is no complete agreement on the subject, and we'll hear what two experts have to say. So we hear first from Dr. Mark Willenbring, an internationally recognized addiction psychiatrist who has been pioneering new ways to treat alcohol and drug use disorders for over 30 years. As professor of psychiatry at the University of Minnesota and director of the Alter Clinic, his research focuses on better ways to manage chronic complex conditions where substance abuse, mental, and physical disorders are often combined. Dr. Willenbring, I'd like to talk with you today about the biology and the neurobiology of addictions, in particular the opioid and heroin addictions, and also to get into medically-assisted treatment you're a strong proponent of that, and why don't you tell us what you tell patients when they come in to see you explaining the whole process of addiction? Okay. Well, in general, there are three processes that occur. One thing that's important to understand is that the addiction forms as a result of exposure to a drug. So you're not born addicted. Now, addiction is somewhere around 50 to 60% genetic, about the same as asthma, for example, or many other what we call common complex diseases. What you're born with are vulnerabilities to using the drug. So one of the things you're born with is liking the drug. So whether that's alcohol or cocaine or opiates, this is probably the most important thing is that you like how you feel when you take it. Oh. So for example, some people when they first take a drink, it's like, oh, I'm home. This is wonderful. I love this feeling. For other people, you know, they'll drink half a glass of wine and they'll get a headache and 
feel kind of sedated and they'll go, oh, I don't really like this. So the ones who don't like it are, are hardly going to go on to become dependent. When I talk to an opioid addict for the first time, I'll ask them, do you remember the first time you took an opioid drug? Whether that was heroin or whether that was Vicodin or Percocet or whatever. A lot of times it's during their teen years. And almost to a person, they will say, I loved it. Just like that. I loved it. I felt great. I never did. You know, this was home. I never wanted to leave. Wow. Now, when most of us take, when most of us take an opioid pain medication, we feel itchy and nauseous and sedated and constipated. We can hardly wait to get off of it. But that's not true for the future opioid addicted person. The second thing is that they can quickly form a high tolerance to it. So the most common manifestation of this that, that everyone can recognize is that the person who is at high risk for developing alcohol dependence will be the person in high school and college when everybody else is throwing up or passed out. And they're going, hey, where's the party? I'm just getting started. I call it the hollow leg phenomenon. Uh-huh. This is the third thing that people are born with is they don't have a lot of adverse effects, especially when they first start using. So again, you know, they don't have all these adverse reactions to opioids or in, or in the case of alcohol to alcohol. In the case of alcohol, they can drink a lot and yet be up and out the next morning feeling great, whereas other people would be in bed two days with a hangover. So uh, the fourth thing is, and this is true we know for both opioid uh, addiction and for alcohol addiction, is that they feel stimulated by uh, taking the drug Especially again, especially at first, rather than feeling sedated or sleepy. So, someone who is a future or is at high risk for developing opioid use disorder will take an opioid and it'll wake them up. They'll clean their house, they'll have all sorts of energy, they'll get all sorts of things done, and they just feel really good on it. So, what these factors do, these vulnerabilities do, is that they make it very easy for someone to use that particular drug in large quantities and repeatedly for a long period of time. Well, what's the problem for the people who feel great with it, other than the fact it's illegal? What's the problem? Well, so addiction develops as a result of exposure to a drug. So by exposing the brain to high levels of a specific drug that you find highly reinforcing, the brain starts to adapt to it. And it's in that process of neuroadaptation that the symptoms of addiction develop. In many ways, I think of the real disorder as being heavy use and addiction as being a secondary complication of heavy use. So in that sense, addiction is to heavy drug use what a stroke is to high blood pressure. Say it again. It's a very interesting way to to think about it. So again, the, the disorder, in my view, is heavy use. Now, heavy use is often not symptomatic while the, the addiction process is developing. It only becomes symptomatic after the addiction develops. So what I was saying was that like high blood pressure, people who are heavy users of a drug, including alcohol, will typically not have any symptoms until addiction develops. 
So both high blood pressure and heavy alcohol or drug use are typically not symptomatic problems, but they are really the origination of the problem. So there are secondary problems that develop as a result. For example, untreated high blood pressure increases the risk for the development of a stroke or of heart failure. In a similar way, heavy alcohol or drug use puts someone at significantly increase the risk for the development of an addiction. So the brain changes as a result of this exposure. And it's in that process of neuroadaptation that the symptoms of addiction start to develop. Usually, the first symptom is impaired control once they start using. Once they take that first drink, once they take that first hit or that first pill. And uh, I call it the water slide phenomenon. So before you get into a water slide, you may say, I'm going to stop after 15 feet. But once you're in the water slide, you, quote, change your mind. So once you start, you always go to the natural conclusion for you. That's different for everybody. And as one of my uh, patients completed that for me, he said, yeah, there's no water in the pool at the bottom. So once somebody steps into the water slide, once somebody takes that first dose, they have impaired control over their use and can't stop reliably. What happens then is that they'll set limits and then they'll consistently go over them. So they'll say, I'm only going to have two glasses of wine when they open a bottle of wine. Pretty soon the bottle is gone. That's about five glasses. And then before they know it, the second bottle is open. And they, they do this over and over, keep trying to control it in various ways. I'm only going to drink on weekends. I'm only going to drink X amount, or I'm only going to use X amount, or I'm going to stop for a while and just use occasionally. And they have a persistent desire to quit or cut down, and they find that hard to, hard to do. And they spend more time doing it than they wish they could or, or the, than they wish they did. But oftentimes, they will continue using in spite of internal uh, problems such as uh, hangover or heartburn or sleep problems or even with uh, overdose or with medical infections or things like that. Those are the core symptoms of, of addiction, is that impaired control over youth. We're in the middle of this podcast on the subject of the neurology of opiate addictions, and I'm Barbara Alexander from On Good Authority. Now let's hear from my recent interview with Brian Johnson, MD, Associate Professor of Psychiatry and Anesthesia at State University of New York, Upstate, and co-chair of the annual workshop of the American Psychoanalytic Association, which is entitled The Addicted Patient in Psychoanalysis and Psychotherapy. While training residents in psychiatry at Harvard, Dr. Johnson treated about 15,000 patients undergoing detoxification. Dr. Johnson's publications focus on neuropsychoanalytic treatment of patients with addiction, prescription drug abuse, and the treatment of chronic pain. What are the premises that you, as an, an analyst and a neuropsychoanalyst, have in your mind when you start working with addictions and addicts? What's the basic premise that you operate on? If you're a neuropsychoanalyst, the concept is that Neuroscience is the basic science of psychoanalysis. So the analogy would be if you're treating hypertension, sometimes you just think about the blood pressure and you give a medicine if you're a primary care doctor, 
But sometimes you're thinking of the mechanisms. Gee, is this essential hypertension? Is this kidney disease? Is this some sort of unusual uh, endocrine disorder? So if you're a neuropsychoanalyst, sometimes you're just using a standard set of psychoanalytic models. But of course, I've uh, developed psychoanalytic models through uh, many of my papers. And these psychoanalytic models obtained specifically for addiction as well as covering general psychoanalysis. And then there's the neurobiology that you work in too. So to give one example, a patient who had been injecting cocaine came in one day and said that she could see white specks on my white rug. And I looked closely and she was right. And I interpreted your brain is tuned to search for your environment for cocaine. Mine is not. That's why you saw those particles and I did not. So she would always be on the alert for anything that looked like a white powder. Uh, just as today's example, a patient who uh, used cigarettes as a precursor to going back to heroin and we interpreted that he turned on his craving with cigarettes, uh, started a new job, and what's his first thought? Oh, my God, what am I going to do during uh, breaks? Because I'll walk out, people will be using cigarettes, and I'll be tempted to use one. So the interpretation was, well, for non-smokers, when we travel outside and see people smoking, we go, yuck, and we walk away. And in fact, you're going to have to walk away, but also known that, that your brain is tuned to look for cigarettes. The biology of craving is that, first of all, a drug can't be addictive unless it changes the uh, dopaminergic seeking system, yak panceps seeking system. And then the brain is reorganized by having that system changed. So a perfect example is many of our patients will remember they were five or 10 and they saw parents smoking and they thought, danger, 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 mommy, daddy, please stop your cigarettes. Or the pregnant patient I was just seeing told me as a late development in her therapy as, as the dissociation responded to interpretation, oh my God, I remember seeing pregnant women smoking cigarettes and thinking, oh, that's horrible. They shouldn't be doing that. But it came late in her treatment of uh, her own smoking while pregnant, which initially she, in this dissociated way, thought, oh, this guy Johnson, he's got such a crazy focus on cigarettes, why would he do that? So uh, we see craving, we see psychological changes that are driven biologically by the change in the seeking system. And then you can interpret that. You know why you so urgently want cigarettes? It's because, again, it's, it's changed your thinking. And then you can contrast, remember how you felt when you were five and how you feel now 
you can see what the change in your thinking that was caused by the cigarettes is. Now Dr. Johnson is going to describe a fascinating and simple tool to demonstrate to an addict how the addiction has changed his or her brain. Well, so we, we need a biological test for the receptor system. And uh, right now what we use is something called the cold pressure time. So the cold pressure test is a fancy name for a beer cooler full of ice water. It's got a circulator pump. You put your normal forearm in there. And the average time that people can hold it in as a test of pain tolerance for normal controls on our service is 110 seconds. The people who have been on opioids have short times. So I think in our 2014 paper, the average time was 16 seconds. And then we can show the opioid receptor system coming back as shown by prolonged uh, cold pressure times. So in that study for people who came at, I think it was 15 seconds on opioids, a month later, the average time was 56 seconds. So between natural healing and the pressure of the low-dose naltrexone, uh, we're, as a hypothetical model measured by the cold pressure time, fixing the opioid receptor system. The paper we're working on would suggest that the cold pressure test should be a routine clinical test, both on addiction and pain services. Well, if it's not... Let's say that somebody who's been in rehab, a less sophisticated rehab than your program, could they just time themselves, stick their arms in a bucket of ice water and see how long they can last? Sure. So it's not a special machine or anything? No. That would really be a a great comfort to many um, addicts and their families. Well, there's nothing like seeing a 17-year-old person walk in and have a cold pressure time of 15 seconds and then have his mom, who's 40, do it, and her time is three minutes. It really Mm -hmm. shows that brain damage is occurring from opioid use. You've just listened to doctors Mark Willenbring and Brian Johnson discuss their views on the underpinnings of opiate addiction. And I'm Barbara Alexander. So I hope you'll join me next week for more on the subject of opiate addiction. And by the way, I'd love to hear your thoughts and comments about this program and any ideas you have for future programs. My email address is info at ongoodauthority.com. And if you or someone you know would like to earn continuing education credit for listening to these podcasts, just go to www.ongoodauthority.com for complete information. So until next time, this is Barbara Alexander thanking you for listening.